Heavenly Father, we are grateful and thankful that in Jesus, death was arrested. His death seemed like a loss. For from the foundation of the world, death brought victory. We have victory in Jesus for all who trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord God, we have the privilege right now of opening your word to hear you speak. As I think of that statement, people are wondering where you are and want to hear you speak. But we have Genesis to Revelation. We have your holy word where you are speaking. Lord, we are the ones with the problem. We need ears that are attentive. We need eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, Lord, I pray that as, as, as I open your word, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive from you. But maybe not just be hearers only, but doers as well. That we may glorify you in this region. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let me say good afternoon, everyone. Let me try that again. I know we, we, we small, we're a new church plant, but y'all can talk to your brother. Good afternoon, everybody. For those of you who are visiting with us, welcome. Thank you for, for worshiping with us. My name is Russell McCutcheon, the lead pastor here at Reconciliation Church, and I'm glad that you chose to worship with us in this at this 4 p.m. Uh, we worship in the evening, not normative, but we worship in time. God is outside of time, so it doesn't matter if we worship at midnight, at three in the morning, two in the morning, I won't be here. But we always have the opportunity to worship the Lord and we can trust that he is present with us. If you have your physical copy of your word or your digital device, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. But before we get there, I have one announcement to make. I see a lot of young, young people in here. Next week, our kids' ministry starts. I'll say that again. I say next week, our kids' ministry starts. Next week, um, it's going to start for our toddlers and preschoolers. It's going to be down the hall, right out the door, down the hall. We'll be set up out there, and you'll be able to see them. Um, uh, kids will be dropped off before the service. So when you come in, you got toddlers or, or preschoolers, just take them straight to get dropped off and checked in there. Also, the following week, the following week, we will have elementary schools starting. Next week is uh, toddlers and preschoolers. The following week, it will be elementary schoolers. If you have any questions, don't ask me. But if you have any questions that you want to volunteer, Rebecca, raise your hand. Please see Rebecca. She'll be out in the lobby after service. But she is the one that's giving leadership, and I'm very thankful for Rebecca and the work that she's put in. And I'm excited for those of you who have little ones, uh, that they will be in a space where they will be safe and that they're going to hear about Jesus. So next week starts our kids' ministry. Now let's turn our attention to God's word. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. Here's what God's word says. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, 
others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Turning points. Turning points. There have been turning points throughout all of world history and American history. There have been things that have taken place where there was a shift. And things would never be the same after that shift. One of those years was 1967. 1967. This year was the court case of Loving versus Virginia. Loving versus Virginia. Before this case, there were anti-miscegenation laws that prohibited interracial marriage and interracial sexual relations. Before this time, you could not, if you're of different races, intermarry or have uh, sexual relations. The couple involved was an African-American woman by the name of Mildred Loving. Her husband, a white man named Richard loving. Again, the year is 1967. Their marriage violated Virginia's Racial Integrity Act of 1924 that criminalized that criminalized marriage between people classified as white and people classified as colored. You were a criminal if you came into contact and married one another. So what did they do? They appealed their conviction and they went to the Supreme Court of Virginia, but their Supreme Court upheld their conviction. But they didn't stop there. They decided to take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Everything changed here. They agreed to hear their case and on June the 12th, 1967, the Supreme Court issued a unanimous decision that struck down their conviction. It also struck down the law that was in place and ended all race-based legal restrictions on marriage in the United States. 1967 was a turning point for every interracial marriage we see in this country. 1967. In our text today, we have a turning point for the disciples. A turning point. At this moment, nothing would be the same for them. Their eyes were open. Their vision became clearer. My friends, when you look at your life, what was the turning point? What was the turning point? What was that moment where you went from blindness to sight? Or as the scripture would say, what, 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 what was that moment when you went from spiritual death to spiritual 
life. Two weeks ago, my wife and I took Zion back to Washington, D.C. to move into his place and to get ready for school. For a year and a half, he was home because of the pandemic. But now he is able to uh, be back on campus. It was a hot day. We worked hard. And then we, had, we got to the point where it was time to eat. So we went to a restaurant and we, we sat down to eat. And what my wife and I um, love to do, if, if, if any of you have ever gone out with us, you know that we enjoy doing this, uh, where my wife, she asked our waitress, what is the greatest thing that someone has ever done for you? What is the greatest thing? And think about it, you know, if, if, if you've been a waiter or waitress before, um, we, we, it, nothing was inflammatory, but it was one that probably caught off guard. And, and she was said, let, let, let me think about that. And she goes and does the rest, get our check and, and come back. And, and so we posed that question again. And she stated what was the, the greatest thing she believed that was done to her. And then I chimed in and said, the greatest thing that was done for me was someone pointed me to Jesus. Someone pointed me to Jesus. Now, normally, when we go to restaurants, the conversation ends right there. It ends. But something different happened this day because the waitress then looked at me and said, tell me how it happened. I'm glad you asked. I told her that for me, I was at work. A non-Christian organization, I was at work. And my coworker who sat right across from me looked at me and said to me, Russell, what do you think about being saved? That was his language. I said, if I could move, go to that door and be saved, I would. At that time, my life was a wreck. He said, can you go to that one? Early morning, I can't even remember the day, over 20 years ago, my whole life changed. Everything changed at that moment. This is what we have taking place with the disciples. Think of it. Jesus called them to follow him. Some left their nets. Matthew, the tax collector, left his tax booth. And then you had other disciples. We don't know exactly what they were doing. I know one was a zealot, but they left all that they were doing to follow Jesus. And I am sure as they were following this rabbi, that they continue to ask the question, who is this Jesus? As he is teaching and as he is performing miracles. A few months ago, we were in the Gospel of Mark and looked at Mark chapter 4. And in Mark chapter 4, there was a story where Jesus was working, but then he got into a boat with his disciples and they crossed the Sea of Galilee. Now, one of the things we need, we need to continue to say about Jesus is he is 100% God and 100% man. Why am I mentioning that? Because Jesus got on the boat here and went to sleep. I feel like that was a good sleep too. Y'all know about that sleep when you hit the bed. As soon as your head hit the pillar, you out. And you don't remember nothing else until you wake up. But the text says that a storm arose. The, a storm arose so much that the disciples thought that they were going to die. Now, if the disciples just saw Jesus as a human rabbi, it, it's, it's, it's understandable to me how they would then go to Jesus and say, do you care that we are about to die? Wake up. Now, if he was just human, what was he going to do? But Jesus is not just human. He's God as well. Jesus gets up from his sleep. He tells those waves to chill out. 
and the wind to stop. And that was a calm. Then the text says in verse 41 of Mark chapter 4, and they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is this? The longer they were with Jesus, heard him teach and see him work. I'm sure they continue to ask the question, you are blowing my mind. Who are you? You're not like the other people that we've been around. It's something different about you. Who are you? My friends, every person must deal with the identity of Jesus. Whether you are in the faith or not, every person will have to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? You and I, if we're in the faith, we must not make Jesus into our image. Now, again, I've said Jesus was 100% man. Yes, he was. But he was different than you and I. He is sinless. We are sinful. He's not like us. We must be careful not to just limit him to one aspect of his being. That he was just a good teacher. Or, or he was just a good healer. You know how we like to, uh, we look at people and we, we just look at one aspect of them and, and make them small just in what we see. We can't do that with Jesus because he is king of kings and lord of lords. He's God. We must also not create non-religious categories for Jesus to put him in so that we can evade the claims that he make on our, makes on our lives. We can't create these categories for him. You see, the disciples had to face the truth of who Jesus is, and so must we. So I want us to walk through this text and see Jesus, the suffering Messiah. In verses 27 and 28, the first two verses, it says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. On last week, we saw that Jesus healed progressively a blind man. And after he healed this blind man, the text informs us that Jesus left with his disciples and he went about 25 miles north to the region, the area of Caesarea Philippi. This area was a pagan area. They're out of Jewish territory. It is Gentile. And Jesus goes to this area for a retreat with his disciples in order to teach them. Here was their turning point. As they were traveling, Jesus looks at the disciples and he gives them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? Now, so far in the Gospel of Mark, no human has acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God. Who did acknowledge him is Mark as the narrator. Mark said that Jesus is the Son of God as he is writing to Roman Christians. You had God that acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God and demons. No human up to this point has acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. In asking this question, Jesus raised the question of faith. Faith. What is it? 
what is it? You know, we use faith, again, I feel like it's a junk drawer term. It means everything and nothing. We have faith in our abilities. We have faith in our faith, which is weak to me. I don't have, my, I don't have faith in faith. My faith has to have an object. What is faith? Faith lies at the heart of Christianity. It is confidence in God, trusting him. I must pause and ask us to contemplate in this pandemic, in the midst of all that's happening, do we really trust God? Do we really trust him? Or do we think he has nowhere to be found? Do I have confidence in him? That even when my life looks crazy and gets helter-skelter, when things are not going right, can I still say, God, I trust you? Because it may not feel good right now, but I know you are working this out in the end. It's, it, trusting God is better than a movie crash. Where you don't know how things are going to play out. Because the Bible says God is working everything out after the counsel of his will. Faith is confidence and trusting God. The scripture says it this way in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. For the people in scripture and for us, a person cannot follow Jesus from the sidelines. I'm a former athlete. One of the things about sports, you just have a few people on the field playing on the court, playing ball. Most of the people in the sidelines. Guess who is not involved in the game at all? Those on the sidelines and those in the stands. We can't be that way as followers of Christ. Faith requires that we get involved and it's risky. It means following Jesus on our journey in life and not asking for signs. Not asking for signs. And if he does not give us the signs we want, we turn away and do our own thing. Again, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples gave Jesus an answer. They said, John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. Now, early on in the Gospel of Mark, we saw when we were there that Herod, saw Jesus as John the Baptist raised from the dead. Then some people saw Jesus as Elijah. Why Elijah? Because the Jews saw Elijah as the one who would return as the forerunner of the day of the Lord. So they saw Jesus as Elijah. And then they said one of the prophets. This is not just a prophet in general. This is one of those hallowed prophets, those set-apart prophets of the Old Covenant. However, Jesus is not like anybody that came before him. You know how we like to compare people to people? They say, oh, you remind me of them. You can't do that with Jesus. That's like trying to put old wine in the new wineskins. The new wine is going to destroy those old wineskins. Jesus is not like you. We cannot compare Jesus to anyone who came before him. He is totally other. It's not enough to appreciate Jesus. We must understand who he is. 
And then the text says in verses 29 and 30, but you, he asked him, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Here we see that faith expresses itself in public confession of Jesus. Jesus was not content to know, oh, what did they say about me? He wanted to know, disciples, who do you say that I am? My friends, it's not enough for you and I to go around quoting our favorite theologians, talking about this is what they say about Jesus. This is what they say about Jesus. Uh-uh. What do you say about it? How do you get in the book studying the text? How do you see it? Because, y'all, we can't get into heaven on proxy. We don't have a representative to go for us. What do you believe about Jesus? Jesus informed the disciples that it had been given to them to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And in order for them to know the secrets, they needed to know who Jesus is. They needed to know it. They needed to know his identity and purpose for coming to earth. Their decision would show their total commitment to Jesus or they would have to sever ties. In other words, are you all in? Are you all in? There is no middle ground. Now, when it comes to Jesus, there is no middle ground. Either you are for him, you're worshiping him, or you're against him. Now, there's some things in our world that it, it ain't just an either or. Like we try to make people with politics, either you're going to be this or that. No, 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 no. You're not going to pigeonhole me like that. Uh, because that's not salvific. When it comes to Jesus, there is no middle ground. And the disciples had to make a decision. Either we are going to be totally committed to him. Again, the Bible refers to us as disciples, y'all. Either we are totally committed to Jesus or we're going to do our own thing. Many of us try to play the middle of the road. Right? I'm for you, Jesus, but don't ask me to do that. I'm good, Jesus. You know what? I want to worship you, but you know, I don't feel like worshiping with your people today. I'm tired. You know what? I'll give you one Sunday a month, Jesus. And then we think that's good. And then when people try to call us up to something, to get involved with something, we're like, ah, nah. And it's not about our systems and programs that think that, oh, if I do them, then I'm good with God. But because of what Jesus has done in our life, I should want to step in because what, he, what people are asking me to do, Jesus has done so much more for me. So much more for me. But we don't want to be we don't want to be held accountable. We don't want anybody to call us to do anything. And I'm being general here. But it also shows that um, I wonder if we are really fully committed. To following Jesus. Again, as we look at this and many of you who have been with us for a while, you hear me say this all the time and I will continue to say it. Jesus's purpose in calling the disciples to be with him was to train them. In everything he did, he was training them. When he fed the 4,000, when he fed the 5,000, when he healed the woman with an issue of blood, he was intentionally training these disciples, preparing them for the mission that lie ahead for them. Because their mission was tied and connected to the mission of Jesus. 
they were not allowed to do their own thing. And it's in this pagan area that the disciples finally got it right, although partially. Remember the text last week? The blind man, when, when Jesus, in this progressive healing, when he healed him, he started healing him, and Jesus says, can you see? He says, I see, but I see people and they look like trees walking. This, when the disciples said, you are the Messiah, <clears throat> this is partial sight. Because their sight didn't become clear in full until after Jesus was raised from the dead and they received the spirit. So they could see, but not totally. Jesus did not want the disciples to make a decision about him on hearsay or feelings. They needed to make a decision based on their experience of him. That was an old belief. I, don't, I know they don't teach this in schools anymore. But that was an old belief that the sun revolved around the earth. The sun revolved around the earth, but now we know that that is faulty. The sun does not revolve around the earth, but the earth revolves around the sun. Many of us get it wrong in our spiritual lives. We think that God revolves around us, but he doesn't. We revolve around him. He is the centerpiece, or should be the centerpiece of our lives. Is Jesus central in your life? Do you make every decision based on knowing that he sees you? that he cares about every single aspect of your being, and you want to honor him in that. Is he central? The words that we speak, is he central? How we want to step in and serve or we act with our neighbor, is he central? Or is he an add-on? Well, we just call on him when times get tough and want him to step in as like I dream a genie. I just rub a belly in. Now here comes my magician that comes and fixes it and I go on doing my own thing. Is he central to your life and my life? This is what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand and what he wants from us. The disciples needed to realize that Jesus, his person, and his mission was central for what they had before them. And it's the same for you and I. He is the Messiah, the Christ. But what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? You know, we, you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, like Russell McCutcheon, Jesus Christ. Like, no, Christ is not his last name. Christ points to the fact that he's Messiah. But what does it mean that he is Messiah? In the Old Testament, there were three groups of people that got anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. It's this last group, kings, that influenced the development of the concept of Messiah in Judaism. How did the Jews see the Messiah? See, they, perceived, they believed that the Messiah would establish and protect an everlasting kingdom over all the earth. And that he is the king chosen by God 
who would deliver Israel from its enemies and then cause them to live in peace. Uh, I'm jumping ahead. If you go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked Jesus a question after he was raised. They said, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were looking for a king that was going to wipe all the enemies out, all the, 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 the Romans that were oppressing them, get rid of them and set up a kingdom that Jewish kingdom that would have peace and the enemies would be vanquished. This is what they were looking for. As we'll see in the next few verses because verse 31 and, and to verse 32a says this. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Jesus spoke plainly and openly to his disciples about his purpose and mission. They couldn't question it. Sometimes we go into organizations and we wonder, what are they about? What is, what's their mission? What's their purpose? Jesus is laying it out clearly for the disciples. This is my purpose and my mission. And as Jesus was saying it to them, they had to keep it on the wraps. They couldn't go tell everybody, man, this is what Jesus came to do. They had to be quiet about it. Now, when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, he didn't just confess for himself. He was confessing what all of the disciples believed. So now, again, in my mind's eye, they are following the king that was going to make everything right, but everything wasn't going to go the way that they thought. Because what they were going to learn is that as Jesus goes to the cross, they're going to learn that his mission as Messiah involves suffering and death. Wait a minute. But you're the Messiah. We don't have a concept of Messiah suffering and dying. But it's like Jesus saying, you're right, but I'm going to do the latter. What's interesting is that Jesus was not going to die by the hands of wicked people. He was going to die by the hands of the religious elite. Dare I say it, he's going to die at the hands of church folk. It was not humanity at its worst, but humanity at its best. The religious elite did not make a mistake. They didn't make a faux pas like, ah, oh, we didn't try to kill him. No. They deliberately planned to kill Jesus. And this was appalling. And this had me thinking about all of the things, especially in world history and especially in American history, where those who call on Jesus, the evils they have done in the name of Jesus. And we don't have to go back too far. January the 6th in Washington, D.C., insurrection, waving flags of Jesus and going in and causing damage. And then I think in history you have the doctrine of discovery where a king in another country determined and came up with some decrees and put out that they had the right to invade, subdue, and capture who they considered to be the enemies of Christ and to reduce them to perpetual slavery. How did this country start? How did it start? In the name of Jesus. 
you wipe out indigenous peoples. We're doing this all in Jesus' name. So this is not anything new. This has been happening. And so Jesus informed the disciples that those of the Sanhedrin, that's who they were, the, 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 the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, they would have been put to death. But I, I love what the text says that Jesus, he let them know that I'm going to get up again. Y'all, we can stop the sermon right here. Jesus is alive. In my language, he ain't dead. He is alive. Now imagine what that must have sounded like to Peter and the disciples, that their rabbi, the one that they were going to follow, their Messiah, is going to die. The disciples believed that the Messiah would be their conquering king, but what they did not know was that Jesus would don a servant's towel instead of a warrior's sword. That he would not inflict suffering, but suffer himself as a ransom for many. Jesus did not fit the messianic stereotype. He is the one that defined his mission and his purpose. His, he taught the disciples that his, his earthly life was not about victory and success, but rejection, suffering, and death. And he spoke plainly about this. It was a mystery, but the, 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 the mystery of the kingdom and how God would bring it is the mystery of the cross. The cross would inaugurate and bring this kingdom. Now, what Peter and Jesus saw shows us in the last few verses that we can't understand his mission from a human perspective. We can't understand his mission from a human perspective. The last two verses, the end of verse 32 and verse 33 says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Peter and the disciples couldn't stomach what Jesus said. No, Jesus, you can't die. That's not happening. Because they, had a, they wanted a triumphant Messiah, not a suffering one. And as I think about this, y'all, I am suffering averse. I can't stand suffering. I always want to come out on top. Am I the only one? But I often notice this, that God typically brings victory in my life through suffering. Through suffering. See, the disciples wanted this triumphant one, not a suffering one. Now, here's the irony. Peter was a disciple, correct? He's going to his rabbi and going to tell his rabbi you wrong. That's like, and I said, that's like our children coming to us like, now, you know you're wrong, right, dad? My kids, they don't the ones that do that, right? Like, you, you know you're wrong. Now, I'm not trying to compare children with this, you know, and, and with, with us to Jesus. It's not that, but I just, I see it ironic that Peter had to follow Jesus and yet he wanted to step into this space of correcting Jesus like he had it wrong. And this was not a gentle rebuke. It was a stern rebuke. Now, here is what's interesting. If Mark received his gospel from the lips of Peter, then I imagine Peter remembering this scene as he is telling Mark just like, man, that, that, that came a time where Jesus told us he was going to suffer, and I tried to correct him. 
And I imagine Peter feeling all of the feelings that he felt that day and falling back to the embarrassment, the pain that he felt realizing he was wrong. Have you ever recounted something in your life and you felt all of the feels and just realized just how messed up that decision you made was? See, I imagine this. See, what Jesus taught the disciples was a deep mystery that they didn't understand. See, they got it right that he was the Messiah, but they didn't understand that he had to suffer. Jesus had to suffer because this was the only way to destroy Satan and his mission. Satan was totally clueless to Jesus' mission. He knew Jesus had a mission. That's why he tempted him and said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Fall down and worship me. Satan knew he had a mission. He didn't know that mission involved death. And that in death, he was going to be destroyed. But Jesus saw Peter's rebuke as opposition to what he came to do on earth. Not only did Peter believe this, but the disciples believed this as well. Now, when, we, when what we think conflicts with the things of God, our thinking is on the side of the enemy. Here's the thing. We have to do work looking at the scripture to realize that even when things are hard, even in the life of Jesus, him going to die, that there's something that's going to be good for us. It's going to be good for us. Even when things are hard in our lives, Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There was a lady who had some roses. And these roses were dead in her hands. I need to let y'all know now, like, Russell don't have a green thumb. And if you give me some roses, I can guarantee you, they are going to die. But these, these roses in this woman's hands, they, they, they were good for nothing but to be thrown away. But she wasn't throwing them away. She just crumpled them in her hands. She crumpled them. And she explained that the roses were dead, but if she dried them and crushed them, she would then have potpourri. See, while the flowers were dead on the outside, they still had a lot of fragrance on the inside. Even in their apparent demise, they can still be turned into something sweet. The death of Jesus, although it was horrific, my God, it brought something sweet to our lives, didn't it? We thought that things were hopeless, but Jesus got up. And he knew what he was doing. He took our place for our sins. He was our substitute. He could do this because he is the son of God. So I ask again, what are the ways you view him? What are the ways you view Jesus? He is the God man. The Messiah. Who died for your sins and my sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And after three days, he got up again. They rolled a stone in front of the entrance. My friends, but that stone wasn't there to keep Jesus in. And it wasn't rolled away to let him out. But Jesus got out of that grave. 
Jesus, the risen Savior, has a kingdom where he rules. We typically talk about the kingdom this way. It's already but not yet. Yes, the kingdom is here, but it's not here in its fullness. So what are we doing right now? We are waiting for him to return. And I don't know if you guys have been thinking this, but as I see what's going on in Afghanistan, as I see the earthquake in Haiti, wildfires in California, do you say like me, Jesus, did you want to return today? That'll be all right with me. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It seems to be getting worse. And we yearn for him to come and set up his rule. That kingdom that the disciples wanted, that kingdom is coming. That kingdom is coming. With those of us who call on the name of Jesus, we're going to be worshiping him. There will be no more tears. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more multiple sclerosis. There will be no more anxiety. There will be no more mental illness. But what do we do until he returns? What do we do? Like the disciples, we're called to be on mission. Whose mission? His mission. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you. We love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we see in the disciples who often got it wrong that Jesus, you were patient with them and that you continue to invest in them and train them and that you sent them out. Lord, that just lets me know that you are patient with us. Lord, continue to develop us. Help us to obey you. If we say that we are on team Jesus, help us to be all in. That we may honor and glorify you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.